Data for the People, a Paris 21 bot crisis podcast. Welcome back to the Data for the People post-crisis podcast. I'm speaking this week with Maruf Syed. Maruf is the president and CEO of the Center for Economic Research in Pakistan. He's also a senior fellow and advisor at Harvard. Maruf has been working for more than 20 years in the private sector and in academia, and he brings this rigor to his work with CERP in Pakistan. CERP is doing some fascinating work advising the government and others on data analytics, decision science, governance, and political economy, and many other areas where he really looks at bringing data into decision-making on an everyday basis. CERP has developed a new framework for decision-making in context of high uncertainty that enables decision-makers to leverage data at the local level to inform policymaking. It emphasizes an active learning strategy to enable real-time testing and refinement of policy responses to make governments learn faster and make better decisions within a shorter time period. Maruf has a fascinating perspective on the COVID-19 crisis and on the role of decision-making in data-challenging environments. I hope you enjoy the program. SERP is an institution that started with five economists about 10, 12 years ago. It was really focused on doing world-class research. And then uh, we developed quite a bit of reputation. And uh, we have now 84 research fellows that include Esther Duflo and Michael Kramer, uh, who are recent economics uh, Nobel uh, recipients. And, um, you know, really contributed to the world knowledge. The idea was not to just work in Pakistan, but to use Pakistan as a lens to understand what are the challenges in developing countries. So after 20 plus years in the tech industry, I kind of went back to my roots of, you know, sort of exploring economics, uh, tech and policy intersection. That we're based out of Lahore and at this point have about 25 different programs working on education, women's mobility, on skills development, uh, agricultural, precision agricultural development, and other areas to really sort of play our part and in really informing policy and more importantly, doing rigorous quantitative research uh, in, in spaces where partly building that institutional capacity, but also creating that buy-in in the government to really increase the take up uh, of these insights. Maybe you can dive a little bit more deeply into the Institute itself, SERP. We often find, uh, you know, in Paris with our own work that you can have the best uh, academic bona fides and, 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 you know, the sound research and quality research, but talking to policymakers and getting them to listen is, can be a different thing entirely. So maybe you could talk about your relationship with government and how you work with government there and, and, and how you ensure the relevance of, of the, re the research that you do on the ground to the community and how you, if you see some evidence of it being taken up or how you see it being taken up there. I think the best example is really uh, our tax work, which is not our biggest work, but uh, it's my favorite project, actually. Uh, so we started working in uh, property tax and its implications in the, in the largest province of Pakistan, which is Punjab. It's about 140 million people. So really, you know, uh, honing in on the property tax aspect, you know, and highlights some of the issues uh, of trust deficit and other things that you find a lot in developing countries. So anyway, the property tax, what we started to do was we started to work with the government and really take up this issue that they needed to uh, generate revenue and really increase their 
fiscal space to uh, support some of the program. So uh, we went in and looked at their system. Uh, all tax collectors or government officials at this level were actually paid exactly the same. So there was no real incentive for innovation, for performance. So we went and created a structure where we said, look, let's look at monetary incentives and non-monetary incentives. And um, we basically designed uh, it around performance. So performance-based monetary incentives uh, and then performance-based postings or transfers, which is a very big deal here. And uh, what we saw was about 46% increase in tax collection. Uh, we said that, look, you know, now that you've gotten this, we can actually really create a lot, of, lot more efficiencies in the system. So we went ahead and looked at how can we basically create salience for these uh, things? So we started basically uh, looking at citizen relationship and that social contract between a citizen and the state. And as public services was provided, we said 35% of all tax collected should be spent in the same community where it was collected. And what happened was, which was very interesting, was that voluntary tax payments went up. Now, this is very interesting and remarkable because in a lot of developing countries, it's a low trust environment. People don't trust the government to use tax money for their benefit. And so by doing this sort of a research approach, a methodological approach, and really saying that, look, this can have an effect. And what really interestingly happened was that the politicians or the local politicians saw it as a, as a vehicle to basically create a more voter base for them. So they started approaching us and looking at how can they support this program and therefore get political capital out of it. So it seems like the, the groundwork having been done to establish that the, the trust and, and, and mutually beneficial incentives to, uh, to, to, to do your work probably served you well when, when the crisis hit. So you're back in Pakistan for, for, for two years, COVID-19 happens. Tell us about your, your, your journey in this context and the, the work that you've done in response to that. For SERP, I think it was an, a very unique uh, opportunity. Uh, number one, uh, to really, you know, see our mission through. If we are a mission-driven organization, these are the moments where you have to stand up and be counted. Uh, you have to really understand that these are the moments where institutional capacity can have a lot of impact. And if that's what we measure us, ourselves by, uh, we cannot shirk from that uh, responsibility. And the second thing is it was really a, a opportunity for us to use all of our strengths. Uh, we are a quantitative research house. We understand uh, evidence, but we also have a survey unit where we can do phone surveys, collect data, understand how to do it systematically, and then data analytics, be able to really analyze uh, the data coming in in a very deep sort of way, uh, merging econometrics and algorithmic analytics, if you will. So, uh, you know, really, I think the real challenge that was facing countries was that this, you know, we were the curse of the binary choice, if you will, right? So on one hand, uh, shutdown uh, prevents the spread of the disease, uh, but risks economic collapse and non-COVID health morbidity. 
Um, to put things into perspective, Pakistan has about 25% of the people under poverty line. And uh, now this new term, new poor, is being uh, talked about, uh, but there are an additional 20% uh, people in Pakistan who can not sustain a, a, a single macro shock. So if a shock like this happens, they are you know, subjected or pushed down into um, extreme poverty. And then uh, you know, the other side of this binary choice is that you open up, you minimize the socioeconomic fallout, but you risk thousands of people dying because of COVID-19. And this decision is really hard in a developing country uh, context because you have capacity and implementation constraints, whether it's equipment, resources, things like that, or you have uh, modeling inadequacy. I mean, quite honestly, uh, models are a useful start, but not enough by themselves. And what we're seeing, which is very uh, challenging in this case, is that uh, it, this disease manifests itself differently in different contexts and not just context, but actually individuals even. Um, then the third thing is insufficient data. We don't really fully capture uh, economic loss or other health loss or learning losses in education. Uh, and then fourth, limited sort of response in terms of grading. Disease is differential across space and time. And we don't have frameworks that really uh, address that. So that was kind of the motivation behind what we call smart containment with active learning scale. Uh, and the way it works is, uh, you know, really three fundamental concepts around it. Uh, active learning. The way I describe it is, you know, imagine that you are on a road and you suddenly approach very, very dense fog. And that's what this disease is. We don't fully understand all the aspects of this disease at this point. So it's a very dense fog. Now, what you don't do is you don't step on the accelerator and just go through the dense fog. You don't know what's on the other side. So uh, you have to you know, sort of pause and slow down and you utilize your senses and capture data. And so active learning is pretty much that same phenomena but in this crisis where you have some data, you have population density, you have demographic information, but how do you capture and act so that you can learn faster and learn so that you can act? Um, so really collecting data every two to three weeks on COVID related um, prevalence and transmission. Second, uh, non-COVID health. There is other health outcomes out of this crisis. And then social uh, economic impact. So we actually did phone surveys on economic vulnerability, uh, hot zones, and food insecurity clusters so that we can then use that data to inform decision-making and policy. Uh, the second fundamental concept is gridding. Uh, gridding in the sense that, uh, you know, really breaking the region into isolatable small grids. Uh, where in rural communities, it's villages or a collection of villages across a natural boundary. In urban environment, these are neighborhoods within a city. So we, I'm based out of Lahore, which is the second largest city in Pakistan, and we actually did this in Lahore and now are doing it in Karachi. And then grading approach. So really for policy 
contextualization, Tai responds to imagine, you know, four levels of alert system. Uh, it goes from green to red. Uh, so level one, you prepare the disease, you know, you don't have incidence of disease. Then level two, where you have a, you know, early incidence of disease, uh, but you can do certain social distancing, uh, you can do certain testing, which is targeted to understand what kind of prevalence uh, there may be in this region. So overall, imagine that you have some grids where there is high infection rate, but you're also testing around that area, not just for therapeutic purposes, but also for creating early warning systems. So really understanding that what is the prevalence and transmission in an area close to a high infection area. And what we're finding is that uh, that is very useful to understand how disease may spread. Now you can overlay that on population density or you can overlay it in specific demographic information. But really what you're doing is you're making those decisions at a much more granular level as opposed to destroying economy on one end or you know, uh, destroying or having a public health emergency, you have graded your response to operate and operationalize your testing, your compliance uh, uh, testing, or your <clears throat> social distancing, or other measures based on that granular information. If I can just dig a little bit more deeply into this, I mean, I mean, what you're saying sounds eminently sensible, but. I mean, our experience in, in, in the context of these crises and, you know, um, in context where national statistical systems are already overburdened, I mean, I mean in a practical sense, how, how does this data collection, you know, what does this look like? You know, how are you actually getting the data that you need to, to inform uh, this process and this kind of this, this iterative decision making kind of approach that you, you described? That's where the rubber meets the road, right? And uh, we did all of them because it was exceptionally uh, hard in the beginning uh, because there are coordination failures, right? So I'll give you an example. So for uh, census blocks in Pakistan, you require the Pakistan Bureau of Statistics, which is a federal uh, agency. Uh, they produce these census blocks that has all the information on demographics, on uh, you know, uh, population density and whatnot. And these are then provided to individual uh, provinces. So we work with the urban unit in Punjab. We work with the health department in Punjab. And a lot of times we actually did the running around of telling the health department, look, we need this data from you, but we need this data from the urban unit and really uh, sort of addressing those coordination failures in the government and using SERP's capacity to do it. Um, and uh, really ensuring that all the right data set is actually collected. So we took a big tent approach. It was not just about SERP. We actually brought 10 different institutions globally. It started with SERP. Uh, we now have Center for International Development at Harvard, LSC. Uh, we have the Yale Institute of Global Health. So we really took a big tent approach and brought epidemiologists, infectious diseases, economists, data science expertise, and really build that scale uh, to be able to support the government in its activity, as well as build that capacity across institutions as well as the state. So we sort of did this in Punjab. We've been collecting data for a, for a long time at this point, and we're seeing an initial results across Lahore. And 
we ended up engaging with three provinces in Pakistan and operationalizing this in different stages. You know, the real challenge was to how to connect our capacity with the government capacity. And honestly, it was a it was a very big constraint. But once we were able to identify the data gaps and work with different departments to get those data sets, I think the value of our analysis allowed us to keep that interaction alive. And that's a very key thing. Responsiveness is also very important that you do that analysis, you very quickly turn it over so that decisions can be made. Let's talk a little bit about trust now. A lot of people have, have concerns of how are you able to, to manage that? I mean, obviously, we're, we're always trying to balance. But how are you, in, in your context, able to, to think about those things and to bring them into your methodology and into your approach to protect data needs, uh, but at the same time, ensuring that you have the data that you need to make those decisions? You know, the reality is data is political, right? And there is within government, especially the relationship with data can be very unhealthy because it it can reveal fractures within government. It can reveal, um, you know, political or power dynamics. So there is a inherent uh, distrust of data, certainly uh, in developing countries, uh, I think, and, and in particular in Pakistan, for sure, we have to deal with it. You know, in terms of contact tracing, the way we approached it was Pakistan has this thing called TTQ, which is a federal contact tracing methodology that they use you know, we, instead of getting that data into sort of a private institution and it's, you know, a complexity around it, we basically said, look, we can provide algorithms that you run on your side. We don't need, we, we don't need access to CDR data. And then the same thing, we established legal frameworks that allowed us to work with these different government departments to ensure that citizen identifiable data is not uh, released outside of the government and from that perspective. Now, I think the larger framing of us as countries and in a moment of crisis sometimes, you know, with things that were impossible two months ago are possible today, right? And I think we uh, generally, all of us, you know, have this very difficult journey, which is that how much data can you look at and examine and analyze, but how do you go back to whatever new normal is? Because I think a lot of times we take these actions, but we don't think about how to roll them back. And because data privacy and tracking, I mean, these are very instrumental in this response, but they're also can be very dangerous in the long term. 